Hebrews chapter 10, we finished uh, Wednesday night in verse 18, kind of blazed through uh, chapter 9 and half of chapter 10. We're not going to pick up in verse 19. We'll go back and get that this Wednesday night. I want to go ahead to verse 26. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Father, make your book live to us, And as we prayed before, may it be a two-edged sword doing surgically what is necessary in our hearts and give us clarity and understanding of these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus took the apostles up to the far north of the land, a place called Today, Banyas, but back then it was called Caesarea Philippi. It's famous in Scripture because it's the place where Peter would make his glorious uh, confession of Jesus. But up there, interesting, Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And the disciples popped off different answers. Uh, some say a prophet, some say Elijah, or one of the old prophets. Some say you know, John the Baptist. And then Jesus asked that all-piercing question, a question we ought to ask from time to time, even if you have walked with Him and know Him, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That is the ultimate question. That is the question of our lives. It is the question of our faith. It is the question that God puts out there for all people to come to an answer. Who do you say that I am? you got to keep that in mind. As I prayed earlier, when you come to a difficult section of Scripture, when you come to a passage you're trying to understand, and, and it's hard, and you're struggling with it, you've got to pause and recognize who Jesus is. You see, it's, it's one thing to read a letter from a stranger. You can come up with all kinds of ideas. But it's another thing to read a letter from a dear friend. And the Bible, Scripture, is best understood when it's read by relationship. You need to bring your understanding of Jesus into the reading. You need to bring relationship with you because the Bible is all about knowing who God is through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 10 verse 7, he said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. Quoting Psalm 40 verse 7, Jesus says, This is all about me. This scroll, this book, this living testimony is about me. 
So we have to ask the question, if in the scroll of the book it is written of Him, well, what is written of Him? What do we understand of Jesus even through the scroll of the book itself? Go back even further than Caesarea Philippi. Back not 2,000 years, but go back 3,500 years. And join Moses on the mountain asking God, show me your glory. Why was he asking that question? Just a side note, show me your glory. I think he was asking, show me your character. I want to know you better. Show me your nature. Show me all of who you are. I I want more of you. Sometimes we sing that, don't we? God said, if I show you my glory, you'll be toaster strudel. Now granted, that's a paraphrase. You can't handle it, but I will show you, what does he say? My goodness. I will make all my goodness pass before you. And so the character of God gets described to Moses. Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands. The implication there is for thousands of generations. And who who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low to the earth and worship. That beautiful description of God is repeated eight times in the Hebrew scriptures. And it's referred to many other times as well. That God keeps loving kindness for thousands of generations. This is His character. This is the God about whom we're reading this morning. This is the one. When you talk about God the judge, do not forget going into any discussion of His judgment. Of even condemnation. Don't forget this is the God who shows loving kindness to thousands. That's His heart. Yet for all the loving kindness, righteously and fairly, God visits every generation. Why? Just to see if they're living by the same sins of the previous generation. Are you doing what your fathers did? See, the Bible's clear. You're not punished for what your fathers did. But are you doing it? Are you continuing to practice those same sins? Or perhaps is this new generation beginning to turn toward Him and seek His grace and His truth? Righteously, he must judge. Now, that's God's self-description. Balanced, perfect, whole, grace and truth. Our self-description could read more like humanity. Humanity. Confused and judgmental. Easily angered. Abounding in self-preservation and uncertainty. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands of those we like. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin when it benefits us. Yet we will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Charging the iniquity of the fathers to the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. See, that's more like us. Well, Rick, you don't have a very high view of humanity. No, I don't. (laughs) The point is this. As I said, if we come to Scripture and we base our understanding on the character of humanity... We will not understand Scripture. 
If we come to the Word of God and we base it on the character and the nature of Jesus Christ in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, then we get it. Then we understand what these things mean, why these things were written. We come to this book to understand Jesus by the character and nature of Jesus. Not dragging ourselves, our old sorry carcasses in with us. No, we're saying, what does this tell us of Him and what do we know of Him? He is the measure of our understanding, not us. I think that clears up a lot of confusion when we come to reading Scripture. When we remember that He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, like Moses, we will make haste to bow down and worship Him. So keep that in mind. Hebrews is a sermon of encouragement. What's interesting is two of the toughest statements regarding judgment and salvation are contained right here in this book. We already looked at one back in Hebrews chapter 6, but then there's this new one pops up just when we thought we were safe to go forward in the book of Hebrews. Verse 26, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Well, that's me. I have sinned willfully. I'll just confess that to you all right now. I won't make you raise your hands because then I'm going to have to call some of you liars for not raising your hands. (laughs) Who has not sinned willfully, knowing the truth, but choosing the opposite because, man, that's what I want to do right now. And when we read a verse like this, it shakes us to the core. What do you mean if we do this, there's no longer... What are you talking about? Hebrews is a sermon of encouragement. It was not written to agitate theological arguments or secretly chip away at our confidence. That's not the purpose of the letter. It was sent out at a vital time, especially for Jewish Christians in the first century, to urge them not to shrink back, but to keep following Jesus. To go forward. These are words of comfort. These are words, yes, of challenge, but a challenge to move on in faith. Hebrews 13.22 tells us, I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. That is, encouragement. For I have written to you briefly. But sometimes exhortation requires admonition. Sometimes encouragement necessitates warning. We need to be warned. And in being warned, when we, when we understand the nature of the person warning us, well then it can have really one of two effects on us. Opposite effects... Warning can either increase fear and trepidation or it can engender faith and trust. It really all depends on the person offering the warning and what you understand of them. Example, a mother tells her two children, don't touch the stove, you'll burn your fingers. One child, a little bit older child, knows mommy a little better, says, mommy's nice, she's keeping me safe, I love mommy. The younger one thinks, Mommy's mean. She's stealing my joy. I hate Mommy for not allowing me to do this. The warning is there. The difference is not with how the warning is given. It's with how the warning is received. And the same is true of the Scriptures. If I am warned by God in the Scriptures and I receive it with a heart of rebellion, God's going to seem mean, heavy-handed, harsh, unfair. 
But if I receive the warnings of God, knowing He has the heart of a Father who loves me, changes everything. In this sermon, and I want to go back and quickly look at these, the pastor gives four admonitions. Four specific areas where he's giving warning along the way in this encouraging sermon. Four warnings. And the question is, how do you receive them? How, how do you take them in? Warning number one. If you want to jot these down, we'll go through them really quickly here. Warning number one goes back to chapter two. Hebrews chapter two. And you can flip back there and take a look. Warning or admonition number one is this. We must pay attention to the gospel. We must pay attention to the gospel. Look at verse one of chapter two. For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the word, that is the old law, spoken through angels, proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That is the gospel. After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His will. We must pay attention to the Gospel. No matter where we are in our Bible study, we must never stray far from the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of our salvation. That's the point. We must pay close attention to it. Not by contrast to the law, the regulations, the religion. Because the gospel is the assurance of our salvation. I've said this many times recently. The only time we question our salvation is when we take our eyes off Jesus. That's when it starts to get uncomfortable or we become uncertain. That's when the theological debate about can you lose your salvation starts to enter the picture. It's only when I'm not looking at Jesus. Because when I'm looking at Jesus, I see how mighty and strong and awesome and powerful He is, and I don't question if I'm going to lose salvation. Because it's based on Him and not on me. We must pay attention to the Gospel. Warning number two. We must be diligent to enter into rest. Note this, chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. As when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me, and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was angry with this generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren. Here comes the admonition that there not be in you, any, in any one of you, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away or in falling from the living God. Skip down to chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to come, have come short of it. Warning! Be diligent to enter his rest. Don't come up short. Down in verse 10 of chapter 4. For the one who has entered his rest, that is God, has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. It's a warning. You can miss your rest. You can be diligent in your work rather than diligent in the rest. Warning. We must be diligent to enter that rest. Warning, we must pay attention to the gospel. Warning number three, we must 
press on to maturity. Chapter 5, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He's an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let's press on to maturity. We must press on to maturity. Warning number three. We are not to be a bunch of bottle-fed believers. No, we should be carnivorous Christians. (laughs) That is feeding on the thick, juicy steak, the meat of the Word of God. Are you a carnivorous Christian? When it comes to His Word, that's our calling. Blessed are those, Jesus said, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. You will never be hungry when you come seeking the food that God would present before you. And we must be those who eat. And so we come to warning number four. Again, warning number one, we must pay attention to the gospel. Warning number two, we must be diligent to enter into rest. Warning number three, we must press on to maturity. Warning number four, we must not go back to temple. Just jot that down, and we'll spend the rest of our time explaining that. Verse 26 of chapter 10. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. First of all, don't miss the collective we. Again, the pastor is not addressing an individual. He's talking hypothetically and he's bringing himself into the picture saying, Hey, if if we go on sinning willfully, if any one of us do this, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. If we go on sinning, he says. Go on sinning is one word in the Greek. It's hamartano. And it is a... Uh, from the word hamartia, which is sin, but it's in the present active participle, which in essence means it's ongoing. Ongoing intentional sin. It's lifestyle sin. It's lifestyle rebellion. Cockerell in his commentary says this sin that he's referring to here is intentional, it's persistent, and it's informed. In other words, you know better. You know what the truth is, but you're choosing the opposite. So the question that arises and has for centuries is, is willful sin unforgivable? If I sin willfully, am I done? What is this all about? Again, warning number four, we must not go back to temple. Now think through this with me. The original recipients of this letter were primarily Jewish Christians. And these people, and we see this throughout the letter, these warnings, these admonitions, these callings to them to move forward and not draw back, they were being tempted to go back. Not to deny Christ, but to do what their forefathers did in the wilderness, and that's that's worship God and. God and another. God and other gods. God and previous systems. And they're being drawn, Lord, to have both Jesus and They're being tempted to go back to temple. 
back to the ancient sacrificial system, back to the old sacrifices for their sins. Think about the pressure. I mean, let's try and make this real for us here. The community pressure, you're a Jew in the first century and you come to faith in Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of your faith. You recognize through the Hebrew Scriptures the coming of Messiah, Mashiach, in this one Yeshua. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. He is the one about all, about whom all these things were prophesied. And you're excited about that. You receive Him and then you go home to the folks to tell them about Yeshua. And there are none to please. You're getting caught up in this sect. Which, you know, the Romans thought that Christianity was just a sect of Judaism anyway. Just another branch of it. And there were many branches. So people kind of looked at it that way. Some did. Think about this. So the family says, Alright, son, it's fine if you want to be a part of the Yeshua sect. But you got to join the fam for Yom Kippur. You need, you're going to come home for Passover this season, right? You're going to celebrate that with us? Make your mother happy. Just, just come to temple and offer up a pigeon or something. You know? And seriously, as a Jew following Jesus in the first century, that pressure would have been intense. Not to violate you, but believe in your Jesus, that's fine, whatever, but, but, but you got it. At least celebrate Hanukkah. I mean, you know, come back and do these things. Join us at temple. How can you not be doing this? It's a lot of the same kind of pressure for people who come to faith in Jesus today. The family saying, look, it's fine. Go to church on Sunday. We don't have a problem with that. But you're going to join us for the party Friday night, aren't you? You're going out with us Saturday night, right? I mean, that's what we always do. Here's the point. He's been making this point for several chapters. And that is this, that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was once for all. Once for all. Once for all. Listen to this again. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, which reads, It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Or how about chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ appeared as high priest of the things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So what does this mean? Verse 26, how does this apply? Let me ask you all the question, and again, don't raise your hand. Have you sinned willfully in the past year? Have you sinned willfully in the past month or the past week or the past several hours? Have you sinned willfully? Listen, if you have, your only choice is to go to Jesus. There is no other sacrifice. No other sacrifice remains. There is no other sacrifice to which we can appeal. Don't try to sweep it under the church carpet. Man, I get tired of that. It happens all the time. Because we don't want to deal with things. We don't want to handle things. Things are messy or they're ugly or they're uncomfortable. And so we say, ah, let's just ignore it. 
Yeah, I sinned big, but just, you know, just, I'm here, so let's just be good. You know, if, if we sin willfully and we don't come to the one sacrifice, nothing else is going to save you. Nothing else is going to work. Nothing else will clean the heart. Nothing else will free you of the guilt and the shame of that sin. Only the sacrifice of Jesus. He is the only one to whom we can come. That's why repentance is so huge. We've talked about this recently. That you, know, you don't owe me anything. You sin willfully. You go out and you get drunk on a Saturday night and then you show up here on Sunday morning. You don't owe it to me to come tell me, Rick, look, I did this and I feel bad, so can you slap my hand and let me go? <laughs> it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Jesus. And if you hold that in, in, in shame and guilt, and you don't come to the one sacrifice, you don't come to the altar, you don't repent and confess it to Jesus and give it to Him, well then it's just going to sit on you. You're going to keep carrying it. Repentance is vital for the restoration of my heart. And so I come to the one sacrifice. And don't think, well, maybe if I just offer a dove. Or maybe if I buy an indulgence, if I increase my tithe, maybe if I go to temple or confess to a priest, or if I add Wednesday night Bible study to my schedule, then I'll feel better. Won't work. Then I'll be restored. Won't work. It's the doing of these things that we think, yeah, maybe if I take communion and I get my grace points for the week, it'll cover over the willful sin. It won't work. There is only one sacrifice to which we can appeal. Jesus paid it all. Once and for all. And the warning I absolutely believe here is against ignoring Jesus for a religious system that would falsely suggest that we can somehow cleanse our sins some other way. There's another way to do this. I can handle this. I can take care of this. I'll just be better this week. You're just offering pigeons. And it won't work. Pastor saying to the Jewish brethren, he's saying, hey, if you sin and go back to the temple to offer up sacrifices for that sin, it won't work. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's done. That's over. And by the way, in a point of amazing confirmation of this, what did God allow to take place in 70 AD? The destruction of the temple and the end of the sacrificial system. Not only should you not go back to temple, but by AD 70, you could not go back to temple. God just took that option away. You're saying God destroyed his own temple? I'm saying God used the agency of Rome and allowed that to happen to end that system. Now, someone thinking way out ahead of me might say, yeah, but I read somewhere there's going to be a sacrificial system in the new millennial kingdom. Yeah, a completely different one. And there will be. But it will be more like our taking of communion today. It will be in recognizing what Jesus did in the previous age. It will not be about covering over sin. Because Jesus did that once and for all, and there is no other sacrifice for sin. Only Jesus. His sacrifice is all that's left. So what I believe the pastor is saying here is if we deny Jesus, there's nowhere else to turn. You sin and you deny Him, there is no sacrifice. There is nothing left to save you. And so Jesus and the disciples were there by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had just delivered some hard teaching. Teaching they had to think through. 
Teaching that if they understood the character of Christ, they wouldn't have had a problem with. He said, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, if you knew Jesus, you knew exactly what he was talking about. If you didn't know Jesus, you'd be like, alright, so this is a cannibal sect. Cannibal lector, you know. And many, many disciples, the Bible says, followers of Jesus up to that point, left. They said, this is too much. We can't go here. And so Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? I love that. He said, you know, there's the door. This runs so counter to to church growth strategies. I mean, seriously, Jesus would stand up here and and at at certain times he'd say, he'd look out over the fellowship and go, now I'm going to tell you something, if you don't like it, there's a door. (laughs) You want to go too? I just love Peter's response. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, Peter got it because Peter knew Jesus. He knew the character of Jesus. He was looking at his Lord and saying, this teaching may be hard, and we know Peter didn't always understand, but he understood Jesus. He knew who his Lord was. He knew that even if he didn't get it, Jesus is compassionate, gracious, full of loving kindness. He knew these things. What happens to those who try to replace Jesus with other sacrifices? All the religious rigmarole, the the, the hoops that people have developed to simulate self-justification. And we've got dozens of things that we do. Not just in, in one branch or another of Christianity, but in the church itself, there are many things people have adopted that we do to try and soothe our sin, to make ourselves feel better. And all the while, Jesus is standing here, arms open, hands pierced, saying, Hey, hey, come on, come to me. Let's pray about this. Let's talk about this. I will heal you. I will restore you. I am the only sacrifice. Nothing else is going to work. Come to me. But without him, we land in verse 27. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume, note this, the adversaries. That's important. He's quoting Isaiah 26, verse 11. The prophet Isaiah is relating a post-apocalyptic song. A beautiful song. You know, it's funny, the the way we look at post-apocalyptic versus the way the world looks at post-apocalyptic. Perhaps you've seen some post-apocalyptic style movies, and the world is always trashed. You know? Post-apocalyptic will be paradise. Post-unveiling. The post-apocalypse of Jesus, the return of Jesus, the unveiling of all these things will enter us in, will usher in the kingdom age which the Bible describes as absolutely marvelous. And so Isaiah is writing a song, a prophetic song about this age in Isaiah chapter 26. And the song begins, in that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. In other words, when Jesus returns... And so he says, and I'm just going to read this to you, Isaiah 26, verse 10, says, Though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. 
He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see it. They see your zeal for the people and they are put to shame. Indeed, and here it is, fire will devour your enemies or in the Septuagint translation, the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And so that's what he's quoting. Sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth describes someone, listen to this, who has chosen to be an enemy of God. So let me add this to the question. How many of you have sinned willfully in the last year? How many of you have chosen to be an enemy of God in the last year? That's intense. You might even think, well, who would do such a thing? Oh, they will. People will and even have chosen to be enemies of God, even though they know better. And that's key to recognize as well. Willful sin, intentional sin. I know better. I know what the truth is here. But I am going to deny and ignore it for my own self-justification. People who know but choose not to follow, actually choose to be an adversary themselves of the Lord. It's not inadvertent. We're talking about intentional. We see this four times mentioned in the book of Revelation. People in, in the world, mankind, during the time of tribulation, who, though they recognize God, refuse to repent. They see what's going on. When people talk about the seven-year tribulation and think about the wrath of God on this world, the immediate immediate thought by so many is, oh, God's just really unloading. Man, He's being harsh. You know what? God's pulling out all the stops to give everybody every opportunity to be saved. A last-ditch effort on the part of God to unveil everything and say, look, this is the truth. Look at what you're choosing. Here's who I am. Make your choice. And the Bible says in Revelation 16:11, they blasphemed the God of heaven. That is, they knew who they were blaspheming because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. In another place, it says they did not repent so as to be saved. Because that's all it takes. Repenting is coming to the one sacrifice of Jesus. The only sacrifice. I repent to you, Lord. I'm bringing this to you because you're the only one who saves. And so these people, these these individuals will recognize God but decidedly reject Him. And for that person, there is nothing left but the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. The word adversary there is hupanantios. Had to think it through. It literally means hostile. Those who are hostile to God. Now, Satan is also called the adversary. It's a different word, but it's the same idea. One who is set against God. One who is hostile toward God. You see, what's happening here, and what the pastor is doing, is he's delivering more than just a warning, more than just don't touch the hot stove. He's clarifying the only hope of salvation. The only sacrifice, which again is Jesus. And when someone sets themselves against Him... Well, that's when hostility erupts. Verse 28. 
anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's serious. But he says then in verse 29, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? What he describes here using three different participles is defiant, rebellious blasphemy. This is not, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm doing it tonight anyway. I'm waking up the next morning going, I willfully sinned. God, I repent. Jesus, I'm coming to you. That's one scenario. This scenario is someone who wakes up the next morning and goes, yeah, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, I made that choice. So, trampling underfoot the Son of God, that picture is brutal. Especially when you consider Jesus' long, bloody walk to the cross. Trampling underfoot. I mean, could you even imagine yourself doing that? Rushing right over Jesus. Stomping as you go by. What kind of heart would do such a thing? And by the way, what is the phrase, trampling underfoot the Son of God, what does that do to you? You see, your reaction to that phrase should indicate where you're at with Jesus Christ. If you read that and go, ah, you know you love Him. If you read that and go, eh, whatever. Not a good place to be. Now, some might point out this phrase. He, he uses three different descriptions here. Trampled underfoot the Son of God. Has regarded as unclean the covenant by which He was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. Well, that middle one's difficult. Some might read that and say, okay, wait a minute. By which He was sanctified. And so someone could say, see, this is someone who was saved and lost their salvation. You can lose your salvation. Well, first let me remind you, he's not developing a treatise for theological argument. He's not trying to stir up or to agitate in that direction. He says, truly, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Let me just throw this out to you, my opinion, but this means everyone. The blood of the covenant is sanctification for the entire world. So it's not just Christians. Do do you you understand that, that? That salvation is not just for those who have received salvation? That salvation is for everybody if they would receive it? Now that's the issue. Truly, you have to receive it. You have to come to Him and say, I believe in you, I trust you for it. So I'm not talking universal salvation here, but there is universal sanctification. That is, there is the act of the blood of Jesus that is cleansing enough to sanctify everyone. So you can technically say, even a lost person, look, you have been sanctified by the blood of Jesus. Will you accept that? Will you receive that? What I'm saying in essence is the blood of Jesus is sufficient. It is sanctifying for everyone no matter who you are. It's there for you. Will you have it? Will you receive it? 
And John says the same thing in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. We've looked at this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. <laughs> Wonderful! And John says, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Was John a universalist? No. No, he was saying the act of the crucifixion of Jesus at Calvary, that singular sacrifice is big enough to sanctify everyone. That truly, from Adam to the last man or woman standing in history, the blood of Jesus is sufficient. Will can sanctify all. So it, I think, pretty easily answers the question that even for the rebellious person, you could say they've regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified. Your sanctification is right there, and you disregard it. And you reject it. The blood of Christ poured out on the cross again once for all. And that means for all time, and it also means for all people The single question left is who will receive the blood? Have you received the blood? In verses 28 and 29, the pastor is specifically describing here a Jewish person who had followed the law, came to understand Christ as the fulfillment of the law, and yet defiantly turned away and spurned him. That's another thing to get here. Where it says up in verse 26, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That doesn't mean the person was saved. It just means they knew everything they needed to know to be saved. They had the knowledge of the truth. Jesus was taught to them, spoken to them. They even understood what the Bible had to say about it. But they did not receive it. They did not enter it. They did not accept it. And remember again, this is an admonition. It's a warning. And so, in verses 30 and 31, he drives the point home. Verse 30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's another song. He's quoting Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 and 36, which is the Song of Moses. We earlier read a verse from the Song of Isaiah. Here's the Song of Moses. And in this glorious song in Deuteronomy, Moses is reminding the people, God will judge, God must repay. And this is key to understanding this passage and the character. Remember, we bring the character of God into our understanding. We bring both the grace and the truth, the the mercy and the righteousness of God. We bring it in to understand this completely. And here is where this warning can be felt in two completely different ways. We talked about this Wednesday, but look at this. Chapter 9, verse 27. It says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment... Verse 28, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of the many, will appear a second time for salvation without sin to those who eagerly await Him. Verse 27 is where the world lives. In fear of judgment. That's why people don't want to hear about Jesus. Because they immediately think church, they equate church with judgment. Sad. They equate Christianity with condemnation. And I'm not blaming that on the church, by the way. I'm blaming that on the conscience. You know, the individual recognizes there's righteousness taught there. I'm not righteous, therefore if I go there, I'm condemned. 
which we know is not the case. But that's the thinking, and that's the fear of judgment. Verse 27, that is where the lost world lives. In fear of judgment, what will happen if, when I die? Will I be judged? Will I be condemned? Is that a reality out there? I don't want to think about that. So you mention the name of Jesus to someone who lives in verse 27, and they go, oh, judgment. Which is why part of sharing Jesus in this world is emulating the compassion and the love and the mercy of God in Jesus. It's referring to Jesus in such a way that people see that in Him, understand His love for this world, understand His sacrifice. Remember, it was His sacrifice. I was talking to someone about this, and I have to keep this uh, confidential. So don't repeat it. No. I need to say this in a way that is kept confidential. Let me just give you a spiritual truth that I came to and and realized again this week. And it may seem simple to you, but it was profound for me to think it through. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, He had a tough decision to make. A sacrifice. Can I do this? Should I do it? Father, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as You will. That decision that He made was for the sacrifice of himself. He he was not struggling to decide whether or not he ought to sacrifice someone else. It was his sacrifice, his choice, him laying himself out there for us. That's the Jesus we present to this world. This is a Jesus who loved you so much that he sacrificed himself. He's not asking you to sacrifice yourself. He knows that you can't. So he did it. The once for all sacrifice. That's again why there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. There is no other. Just Jesus. Well, verse 27 is where the world lives in fear of judgment. Verse 28 is where the Christian lives in eager anticipation of salvation. That's the flip. It's appointed for men once to die and then judgment. And if the chapter ended there, we'd be like, whoa. Bummer. Frightening. But that's not where it ends. When you know Jesus now is the eager anticipation. You are longing for Him. You are eagerly awaiting Him because you know He's coming with salvation. But the point is this, and here is the warning. Salvation is coming. And judgment must come. It must come. All the way back to the beginning, people learned that God would and must judge fairly when He drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. God must judge fairly. By the way, He said when they ate of the fruit in the day that they did so, they would die. Well, in the fairness of God, He drove them out of the garden and they continued to live some 900 plus years. That's grace. But they could not stay in the garden. Think about Noah and the flood. The world became so wicked, God could not allow it to continue. Tower of Babel. People gathering and and honoring themselves and glorifying humanity. And God said, this is only going to end in their own condemnation. God has spread them out. (laughs) Because people are like manure. (laughs) Anyway. I like that example. Christians are like manure. You know, spread us out and and we fertilize the world. Clump us together and we stink. But then along comes Abraham. Remember, Abraham was a polytheist. 
You know, he came out of paganism and multiple gods, and God said, hey, I want you to follow me, because there's really only one. Surprise! (laughs) So Abram starts down this journey of faith, becomes the father of the faithful, because he begins to just trust God and follow God, and he learns something amazing about God. In Genesis 18, the Lord comes along and says, should we hide from Abraham what we're about to do? He was on his way to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he reveals to Abram what's going to happen. Lot is living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram's nephew. Abraham at that point says, Ah, okay, Lord, let's wheel and deal a little bit here. (laughs) Uh, How about if there are 50 guys there that are righteous there in Sodom? Is that cool? Will you spare the city? For 50 people, I'll spare the city. Great. How about if there are 40? Would you do it for 40? I'll do it for 40. Awesome, great. How about if there's 30? Are you willing to you know, spare the city for 30? Yes, for 30, Abraham, I will spare the city. And meanwhile, you know Abraham's doing the math and thinking about the people who live there and going, 20? How about 20? 10? What about 10? You know? Just keeps going down like this and, and the, Lord, the Lord's grace said, 10, 10 righteous people in the entire region, I'll save the city. There was one. One lot who we know was righteous. Nobody else. Even his wife turned back. I like to call her salty. <laughs> we know what his daughters did. I mean, wow, one person. But what Abraham said at that time when he's talking to God and he's, and he's trying to get God to lower the number, lower the number, lower the number, Genesis 18.25, Abraham says, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And Abraham learned, of course he must. Of course he will. Absolutely he must. And, as we've said recently, we want him to. I want God to deal justly. Hey, I grew up with an older brother, and when Ron did things that were wrong, I wanted him to be punished. I wanted fairness, you know? Especially if what he did negatively affected me. Mom, Dad, I'm going to go running off. Because we want justice. We all do. We want the wrongs made right. Look at what our world is doing. Look at the Olympic uh, Gymnastics Committee. And what's taking place there. Look at the whole hashtag MeToo movement. What's the point? Make this right. I have been wronged. I can't be silent any longer. Women throughout our country are saying, I've been wronged. There is something inherent in the heart of humanity that says, I want wrong to be made right. I want justice. I want the memos declassified. I want want it all done right. Psalm 19.9 says, The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. So how could God allow the injustices that we see today? Ever hear that question? If there's a God, how can He allow all the pain and suffering and sorrow? How can He allow injustice in this world? i got to remind you of this. David in Psalm 19 verse 9 is not the only witness of God's true and right judgments. You join Him. Every one of us sitting here, think this through. 
Revelation 19, verse 1, John writes, after these things, he's talking about after the tribulation, he's talking about now coming into the kingdom and Jesus' return, and all those who are in heaven, he says, after these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because, and these people in this multitude quote Psalm 19, verse 9, his judgments are true and righteous. His judgments are true and righteous. It's a praise song. Write it, Rachel. His judgments are true and righteous. We will sing. We will sing. Do you get that? We are in that multitude. You are quoted in Scripture. Because he heard, John heard prophetically, you praising God and saying, righteous and true are all his judgments. So listen, if you've ever wondered, if you've ever whispered, If you've ever whimpered, if you've ever wailed, God, how could you let this happen? A day is coming when your voice will join the multitude and say, He was right. His judgments were true. We will all affirm this, my friends. You know, I think about that that old... Uh, example of wouldn't have been, it have been nice if Miriam and the, and the, uh, uh, the children of Israel and, and Aaron and Moses if they had all praised God on this side of the Red Sea rather than on the other side how much better if we praise him ahead of time because we trust his character and his nature rather than waiting until he's proven himself and then we'll praise him if in your life you are one of those who has said I just don't think it's fair. God, how could you? Man, before the could even gets out of your mouth, how about pausing and saying, you're right, you're true. Your judgments are always right. I trust you. I believe you. Now, to sum up this fourth and final admonition, he says in verse 31, (laughs) it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yeah, I, I get that. My, my dad's hands were big and they could spank me into next week. <laughs> you know those, those same hands that delivered punishment when I was a child back when spanking was still allowed in our country? <laughs> and rightly so. I deserved every walloping I got, I'm telling you. Those great big hands that could deliver punishment were the same hands that tickled little Ricky. Were the same hands that held me when I was in tears after wiping out on my bike. Were the same hands that rubbed my little head until I fell asleep at night. I want to tell you something about the hands of the living God. Yes, They are terrifying. And especially if you're kicking, screaming, blaspheming, and rebelling against God, they are terrifying. Huge hands of judgment. Hebrews 12.29, our God is a consuming fire. Man, kind of like that hand that appeared, (laughs) that inscribed judgment on that big brazen Babylonian buffoon Belshazzar. On the night of his party, Daniel chapter 5, you may recall the story. It's a marvelous story about how Belshazzar is there and he's got his his entourage there and he's just an idiot king. He's actually the son of a king. His father was out, you know, in foreign places fighting. So he's just kind of in charge. 
And they're having this great party there in mighty Babylon, and he calls for all the vessels and the, and the chalices and the cups from the Hebrew temple that they had wiped out. Bring those in. Let's drink out of those. And so they continue to drink into the night and have that. All of a sudden, a hand appears. I just love how God does this. This great hand appears and begins to write on the wall. And Belshazzar sees the hand through the back of the hand. He sees it, the Bible says, and it tells us that his hip joints went slack. He wet himself. There's no other way to put it. That's what Scripture is saying. He wet himself, his knees knocked together, you know, and, and he doesn't know what to do. They're like, what do we do? And there's writing on the wall, and they don't understand the writing. They get Daniel. They bring Daniel in, and he says, Daniel 5.26, here's the interpretation of the message. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. You have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians who, by the way, during this party that night, were gathered outside the walls of Babylon and had figured out a way to get in under the water system. They came right up into the city and that night Belshazzar went belly up. He was killed. Take a message for me. You know what, Chuck, it's happened to me. (laughs) Hey, living that way is terrifying. Living in verse 27 of chapter 9, living in verse 31 of chapter 10, yes, it's terrifying. But let me tell you something else about the hands of the living God. His hands created all things. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse declaring the work of His hands, Psalm 19, verse 1. Or better yet, Psalm 139, verse 13. You formed my inward parts. You wove me together in my mother's womb. His hand did that. Same hand that people may be terrified of was the hand that brought you to existence. From the Cascades to the Olympics to your very life, His hands, the hands of the living God created you. His hands, the Bible tells us, are inscribed. Isaiah 49, verse 16, Behold, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. You ever write something on your hands just to remember it? You know, that's kind of the implication there. God inscribed just so every time he saw his hand, oh yeah, I remember. And what he's talking about there in the context is Zion, Jerusalem. I've inscribed you on the palms of my hand, Jerusalem. Every time I see my hands, I think of my city. I think of my people. I think of Zion. But the pastor reminds us with that, because I've heard that verse used to say, he's inscribed you on the palms of his hands, so that means your name is on God's hands. It's a little bit of a stretch, and yet the Hebrew writer says in chapter 13, verse 5, he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Your name might as well be on his hands, because he will never forget you. Hands of the living God. His hands are tender. Oh, the Bible tells us in Psalm 10, verse 12, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Because He reaches to those who are hard-pressed and afflicted. In His hands, the Bible tells us, are pleasures. Psalm 16.11, you'll make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand, there are pleasures forever. The Bible tells us his hands, these same hands, are a refuge. Psalm 17, verse 7, wondrously show your loving kindness, O God, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand. 
His hands exalt the humble. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and He will crush you. No. No. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. These hands that would lift you up. It's what He wants to do, longs to do. And you know how He did it? His hands were pierced. The hands of the living God. They pierced my hands and my feet. Psalm 26, 16, or 22, 16. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. By His scourging we are healed. Luke 23, 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified Him. His hands were pierced. I encourage you, anytime you read verse 31 of Hebrews 10, remember the hands of the living God that are so terrifying have holes in them. There is no other sacrifice for sin. The hands of the living God. The hands of the living God. You know what else they do? They hold fast. They don't let go. Psalm 139, verse 7, Where can I go from Your presence? Where can I flee? Where can I go from Your Spirit or flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, You're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, You're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, Your hand will lead me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. He does not let go. Oh yes, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God unless you know, unless you know Him for who He is. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Do you know me? When you come to know Jesus, the hands of the living God will never let you go. John 10.27 My sheep hear my voice, Jesus said. I know them, they follow me. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Let's pray. Father, praise You, Lord. Thank You for the reminder again, yet again, As the pastor continues telling us over and over in this marvelous sermon, Jesus is the only hope for eternal life. Jesus is the one sacrifice. There is no other. Thank you for the continual refocusing of our eyes on Jesus. Even unto that verse in Hebrews 12, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we know where this is going. And it is my prayer this morning that we would recognize Jesus Christ, that we would come to Jesus Christ. Lord, if there is willful sin that's been going on in and among us right here in this fellowship, I pray today would be the day that that willful sin is repented of and confessed to You, Lord Jesus, that Your sacrifice will remove it forever, the shame and the guilt that goes with it. Father, bring us to You. Through Jesus, increase our faith and our trust. And may we never kid ourselves into thinking that there's some other way, some other sacrifice, some other action we can take to alleviate our sin. No, it is only You. Only You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.